This is the Bates Bobcast, our weekly podcast where we take a look at the week that was in Bates Athletics. My name is Aaron Morse, and this week we chat with Philadelphia Phillies Director of Mental Performance, C.C. Kraft, from the Bates Class of 2005. The Phillies are headed to the World Series after capturing the National League pennant. Plus, we recap the head of the Charles Regatta with a pair of coxswains and a wild football game with head coach Matt Coyne. All that and more coming up on the Bates Bobcast. The Philadelphia Phillies defeated the San Diego Padres four games to one in last week's National League Championship Series, advancing to the World Series for the first time since 2009, where they will meet the Houston Astros in a best of seven starting this Friday night. The Phillies director of mental performance is former Bobcat and all NESCAC women's soccer player C.C. Kraft, who graduated from Bates in 2005 with a degree in psychology. She joins the Bobcast this week to discuss her journey from Bates to the pinnacle of Major League Baseball. What made Bates the place for you? I believe coming from California. Yeah, yeah. I grew up in Berkeley, California. I went to um, a really large public high school of about 3,400 students. Um, So as you can imagine, with Bates being half the size at the time, a little bit of a change of scenery. Um, My sister and brother actually both went to Bates, um, both older. So um, they were looking at smaller schools. They were looking at um, a chance to really focus on education. Uh, Berkeley is very socially active. And so I think during high school, we all um, were very aware of the world around us and, um, and socially active and Bates gave us a chance to really focus in on our education and and have just amazing professors and amazing experience um, be in an amazing place. And then when you're from California, the brick buildings and the New England fall is unlike anything you've ever seen before. And you have no idea what you're getting into for winter. So, um, yeah, I think we all fell in love when we came back to visit. Um, I came back to, for Halloween, uh, to see my brother play soccer, uh, there and just loved it and, um, felt great about the decision. So a, a family of soccer players, it sounds like, because you obviously played soccer for the Bobcats. I, I did. Um, yeah, my brother played as well. My sister did not. Uh, she was a biology major um, and probably studying the way she should be um, to be a biology major at Bates. So, um, yeah, yeah. But uh, lots of soccer, definitely all throughout high school and uh, my brother and I in college. So take us through kind of your experience playing soccer for the Bobcats. What were some memorable uh, matches for perhaps or some moments for you that stand out? Oh my gosh. Um, I, I think probably what stood out for me the most was the women that I got to play with. It just was an absolutely phenomenal group of group of women. And I think it it probably was a time where um NESCAC sports started to become more and more competitive. We had Coach Murphy, who probably is best known for being just a phenomenal um basketball coach um and was coaching soccer at the time. And just the quality of people you got to be around. Um and, and play with and, and then watching soccer become more and more competitive. And, and, you know, some of the programs um, Williams and Middlebury really get into what it meant to train year round and us start to contemplate that um, it was really an exciting time and, and just an amazing program to be part of. And then amazing to hear about where it's gone since then. So you majored in psychology at Bates, right? I did. Yes. I so, minored in Spanish. 
So what are maybe some aspects of your education that you got at Bates that you apply still today? Everything. So um, Bates had two visiting professors um, and probably the one that deeply impacted my career the most is I think still there. And it's Sue Langdon, Dr. Sue Langdon. And I was so incredibly lucky to have her. Um, She really was my introduction to sports psychology and she was running some really interesting research um, around task and ego orientation. And it really was my first foray into mental performance and sports psychology. And then her support for my thesis was unparalleled. Um, and, and then I presented uh, as actually as an undergrad at the national conference for the association of applied sports psychology in Canada that fall after graduating. And she walked me through every step of it. And, um, we keep in touch to this day. I still see people at the conference with her. Um, she, she probably changed the trajectory of my life. So, um, I hope Bates realizes what a gem they have in her. She's, Truly amazing. Coming into college, is that something you were thinking you were interested in, you know, um, sports performance or that you discovered it at Bates? No, my mom's a therapist. So I, I okay. knew I yeah. loved psychology and, and I knew I wanted to major in psychology, um, yeah. but I didn't realize sports psychology existed. Um, and the introduction there was absolutely amazing. And then I think her support gave me the confidence um, to look at what possibilities existed in sports psychology when I graduated in 2005 really wasn't an applied field. Most people were professors and they might, might've had a small private practice on the side. Um, and so Sue was just amazing. And I looked at programs, um, both domestic and internationally and ended up going to grad, grad school in Wales, right. um, and an amazing program there. But, uh, Sue was always someone I could reach back to. And, and I think that just, opened up a whole different perspective, a whole different life for me. What led you to grad school in Wales? I was curious about that. Um, At the time, sports psychology and mental performance was really into, in the U.S., was really into kind of sportsmanship and life skills learned through sport. Um, (laughs) And I was into how to make people, you know, faster, stronger, and jump higher. And um, I was an athletic trainer at Bates, a student athletic trainer. Um, They had that program at that point where you could take the class and if you got a beer butter, you could work as a student athletic trainer. And I loved the physiology too. And so I, I shared, I had this belief that you really couldn't separate the mental side of the game and the physical side of the game, and that you really should understand both. Um, and the Brits after um, World War II really held a belief that the Olympics were in a really important place to medal. And it was really important on the world stage that they did well. And so the Brits, the Aussies, um, New Zealanders, they all invested in Um, sports psychology and physiology in a way that maybe we hadn't. And so their programs were a little older than ours and very scientific based. And they were working with their Olympic athletes really strongly um, and really looked at it from a research component. Uh, I knew I wanted to do applied work. Um, Thank God for a Bates thesis um, because I had the capability to go to a science-based program. Uh, Don't get me wrong. I struggled through the beginning of it, um, but it was really an amazing experience to go over there and then I got to study underneath people like Lou Hardy and Nicola Callow and um, Callum Arthur. And, and just that was an amazing kind of secondary experience to study in a very scientifically sound program um, and write another thesis. <laughs> um, but um, but stats and everything from Bates was huge. Um, I did like confirmatory factor analysis on a master's thesis, which is not very common. And I actually came back to the NESCAC to gather my research for my master's thesis um, on coaching behavior and how it impacts 
team's performance or team's um, role acceptance and role satisfaction in sport. Oh, wow. So that was your master's thesis. What was the thesis title for uh, at Bates? Um, I don't remember the title, God, that's <laughs> but uh, basically I was looking at women playing female genderized sports versus male genderized sports and whether or not it impacted their um, self-efficacy, self-esteem and body image. Interesting. Um, and Sue Langdon was your advisor for that. Okay. She was. And yeah, then Georgia Nigro was my, um, my psych, what is it, advisor for the whole. So both of them were just an incredibly supportive team. After you graduate from uh, grad school there, you come back and you end up working eventually with the military. How did, how did that end up happening? Because it seemed like you were on the sports track and all of a sudden you were work, working with the military for years, right? So as I said, there really weren't a lot of full-time applied sports like positions, um, certainly not in pro sport. Um, there were four or five with the Olympic Committee, but they were all clinical psychologists who then were... Um, did sports psychology. And I, I didn't necessarily want to go that route. I really loved just applied mental performance, applied sports psychology. Um, and so I was looking around at jobs. I was, um, working in a job that was, was okay, but I knew I didn't want to keep going on. And I saw a military posting and I thought it was pretty humorous given that I grew up in Berkeley, California and never thought I'd work for the government. Um, but I put the resume in because I was putting my resume in everywhere, um, as most of us do when we're graduating from grad programs in college. Um, and they called for a phone interview and the phone interview turned into an in-person interview actually at West Point. And I just was blown away by the, the caliber of both the soldiers I interviewed with and the performance staff. Um, Dr. Bernie Holiday, um, was leading up a lot of it at that point. He's now with the Pittsburgh Pirates, um, and is just phenomenal, and um, I worked down at Fort Bragg. I got hired and worked down at Fort Bragg for around six years, working with the special operations, special forces community for the most part down in, in North Carolina. And I I loved it. I, I was really surprised. I, I actually remember telling Nicola Callow, one of my grad school advisors, that I was happy that the contract said I could quit tomorrow and they could fire me tomorrow because I wasn't sure what kind of fit it would be. Um, and she told me that she thought I'd fall in love with the people and that it really wasn't going to be what I thought it was. And she was very right. I, I really did fall in love with the people. Um, I now you're, I'm in a house in North Carolina right now, actually right off Fort Bragg. My husband's a strength coach um, for Air Force Special Operations. And um, it's just an absolutely amazing community. And the work taught me so much. And I feel really honored and blessed to have gotten to work around um, soldiers for so much time. And um, they, they allowed me I think to go back into pro sport and be a much better practitioner. Um, but it was a really unique and awesome challenge. Yeah. And so before you joined the Phillies in 2021, you spent quite a bit of time with Cleveland. How did, did. that, how did that opportunity arise coming from uh, Fort Bragg? Man, I've been very lucky because it was during the time Cleveland went to the world series. So, um, right, right, right. uh, yeah, in 2014, I joined the, the Cleveland Indian staff. Um, and some of that was through, um, through Bernie. So the, the guy that, that I initially worked for with the military and was doing a lot of the curriculum design for the military program went over to the Pittsburgh Pirates. And then he called me a couple years later and said, you know, hey, Cleveland's looking for somebody. I'd love to put your hat in the ring or your you know hat in the ring. And, and um, he, he said, I, I don't think they're going to mind that you're a girl. Um, and as you can imagine, there are not many females, both that work with special forces populations because they're all male. Um, so I had done a lot of work being the only female there. And then I don't know if there were any females working with Major League Baseball um, on the mental performance side at that time. I don't think there were. And 
the Cleveland front office was absolutely amazing. Tito, Terry Francona, the manager still of Cleveland was absolutely amazing. I think he asked me what it was like being a girl in our interview. Um, and I just got the uh, opportunity to work with an elite club and an elite um, major league staff. And I spent six seasons there. So 2014 through um, 2019 season and, and loved it and, um, and cut my teeth. I mean, I made a lot of mistakes that major league staff um, instead of players watched me make lots of mistakes, um, but stuck with me. Uh, and I still keep in touch with most of them. I'm very excited that, uh, well, unfortunately, Michael Brantley is injured right now for Houston, but uh, we've already been texting and I, I hope we kick their ass. So um, it was a great group of players to get to support and an absolutely phenomenal coaching staff, most of which is still there. You mentioned like mistakes. What was, what was some of the learning curve for you? Because you, you were familiar with sports, obviously, having played it, but um, obviously Major League Baseball, maybe a little bit different than NESCAC soccer, perhaps. <laughs> yeah, Major League Baseball has a lot of unwritten rules. In baseball, they talk about having good feel, which is a great nebulous term um, for something that you can't define. So if you don't have it, it's really hard for anyone to describe how to get it. And you can imagine if you didn't grow up in baseball or were not a baseball player, uh, that's a wonderful thing to try to figure out. Um, and then I think there's, you know, weird aspects like um, I would have members of the front office offer advice, which might have worked if I was a member of the front office or if I was a guy in the clubhouse, but didn't work the same way as a female member of the coaching staff. So um, I made a lot of mistakes, I think, um, sometimes pushing things when I didn't need to push. Um, or trying to create value for myself, like, you know, wanting to make sure that I was doing a good job and um, not letting things come to me, um, learning the language. When I interviewed with Cleveland, I talked about games going into overtime, which oh, in soccer no. makes sense. <laughs> right. right. Um, but but in baseball, we don't have overtime, right? We have extra innings. So um, you can imagine, like, I mean, Tito and that staff watched me make a lot of mistakes, I think, with the first major league player I ever worked with. Uh, it was a pitcher, and Tito said to the player, I don't care if she doesn't know what a double play is. Um, that's not why we brought her here. She she knows, excuse my language, her shit. Um, you know, she worked around guys that are tougher than you with special forces. So just, you know, teach her what she needs to, to know and bear with her. Um, and I had an amazing coaching staff around me with this pitcher. I remember going out and we, we worked on some stuff during a bullpen. Um, and I didn't know what the rubber was called, you know, the white, white piece that, that the pitcher toes. And um, so I was sitting there with Cashy, who's now the, the manager for Tampa. And I, I said, Hey, Cashy, I'm like nudging him and whispering in the air. I'm like, what's that called? What's the white thing? And he's like the rubber CC. And I was like, okay. And so we we're trying to set up a pre-performance routine for this pitcher. And, um, and the coaching staff just, you know, they, they bared with me and, they were absolutely awesome. And, and I think, um, took what I had to offer, taught me what I didn't know, um, forgave me for the mistakes. Um, and sometimes I had to dig myself out of holes. Um, but six seasons gives you some time to do that. Um, I think you look back at certain players that you wish you had done better with, you know, early guys with yips that I th think I could have done better on, but still in touch with a lot of them. And I, I think, Mental performance is an emerging field. So you're, you're, I learn something new every day still. Um, and you learn from your players and you learn from your coaches. So it sounds like growing up, maybe you didn't watch or follow baseball all that much. Is that fair to say? I mean, so was this like a crash course basically, huh? Yeah. Um, probably my trend across my career is that I love people and I end up in, um, 
contexts and locations where uh, I probably have no business being, you know, I I didn't uh, ever serve in the military. um, And I certainly didn't grow up around soldiers. Um, So, you know, you you have to learn and you have to be really curious. Um, A love of hiking definitely helped with soldiers because I spent a lot of time in the woods with them. And that taught me a lot. And I think they respected the fact that I would, you know, go get lost in the woods with them for four days. Um, And then with baseball, my first two years with Cleveland, I moved up to Cleveland. Um, and I think I had both years, about four days occur- from the beginning of spring training until the end of instructs, which usually ends in November that I spent that I didn't go to a ball field. Um, and so I think you, you know, you kind of throw yourself into it and you recognize that you're a novice and you find the people that are willing to answer your questions. Um, Tom Wheatenbauer was an amazing person for Cleveland. That was a field coordinator that, um, I asked probably a million and two stupid questions too. Um, and he sweetly answered all of them. Um, but you, you just, you throw yourself in and, and learn. And then you, you know, you, you care deeply about the people and you stay curious and um, you learn pretty fast though, when, when you go to a ball field every day. So um, I stopped saying overtime pretty quickly. <laughs> right, right. Well, you joined the Phillies in 2021. Um, I read an article saying how you were going to be in the dugout in uniform, at least during spring training. How are you are you still doing that with them or how did that kind of go? It's a really good question. Um, I don't ever wear a baseball uniform. And same okay. reason I don't wear a military uniform because I don't okay. think I've earned one. Um, so I wear the same thing that like an athletic trainer or okay. a strength coach would wear. Mm-hmm. Um I think it would be weird for me to be in a uniform. Um, but, um, yeah, so, uh, Joe Girardi was absolutely amazing when I got there and just pulled me in and he had had a really great experience with, um, a phenomenal mental performance coach, Chad Bowling with, um, who's the director for the Yankees mental performance, uh, mental conditioning department. And so, yeah, I I was in the dugout this year was my one year. I I was not in the dugout this year. Um, Major League Baseball has a rule that you can have eight coaches in the dugout at any given time. And currently mental performance coaches are not allowed in the dugout. Um, So I basically got to sneak in last year and everyone turned the other way. Um, We women don't hide very well in a dugout. There aren't very many of us. So um, we got called out on it this year. Um, although that's a rule we're looking to change and we're hoping major league baseball recognizes how important mental performance is and that these are players that across 162 games in 180 days, plus spring training, plus postseason, um, endure a lot of stress. And we're hoping they take that psychological support and the mental performance seriously. Um, we've got a couple players that actually played for Cleveland, um, that work for MLB now that are really being phenomenal advocates, realizing how important that's been for them. Um, and I'm, I'm hoping that mental performance coaches are a normal and accepted part of being in the dugout from here on out. But um, I got a solid year where they let me sneak in and uh, spring training, they always let me sneak in. Um, so there's there's hope that we'll be a normal part of the dugout in the future. And so not being able to be in the dugout this year, how did you adjust and still be a good resource for the players during games or perhaps maybe immediately before or after? Yeah, um, we're really lucky. So my office, both in my office in Cleveland was right next door to Tito's office. So I was a normal part of the clubhouse and my office in Philly um, is right when you walk into the clubhouse. And so I'm one of the first people you see and I get to greet our players. So um, right next door to the strength and conditioning, the training room uh, or the gym and then the training room. So a normal part of players' lives. So that's pretty amazing. During games, sometimes we're down in the batting cages because they're really close to the dugout. So while we're not in the dugout, um, we're right there. And 
so players can come in and, and they can chat and that's been really cool. And so, you know, guys will come in and chat. Um, and then guys pre post game check in a lot. Um, this year we had an amazing info coach, Bobby Dickerson, who I think is one of the best coaches in the professional game. You're hearing my baby in the background. He was born a week ago. Um, and so I would feel, um, I would, uh, feed balls for Bobby Dickerson um, and either Paco or Dusty, two of our first and third base coaches, whoever was um, helping him with infield every day. And so out on the field, part of it with the players, getting to watch our guys take infield, getting to be part of the coaching staff um, has been absolutely huge. And then, yeah, I, I think we just become a normal coach on the field, just like anybody else. I'm curious about, you don't have to name any names, but maybe is there like a success story of a player you've worked with throughout your career in Major League Baseball that you're really particularly proud of that are having some sort of issue that you were able to help them with? One of the stories I think that comes to mind for me this year was a young pitcher um, who was arguably one of the more talented pitchers um, for the Phillies with it throughout um, player development and, and other areas. And coming in, he kind of had a mentality of things happening to him. Right. And so he wouldn't have a good outing and he would talk about, you know, kind of what what external things were not going right and what around him didn't work out the way it needed to. And we talked a lot about how important it was that he owned part of his space and that he owned his mentality. And as you watched him kind of own that space, it was really amazing to see how different it it became on the mound for him and his pitching, because if you don't own what you're doing every day, if it's always somebody else's fault or if it's the context or if it's the environment or if it's something outside of you, you have no ability to make it better, right? And when you do have the ability to make things better, when you own part of that space, it's both scary from an accountability level, but it's also absolutely amazing in terms of what then you get to as an athlete own and grasp onto. And so watching his maturation across the season and watching what he was able to contribute across the season was pretty special. Um, and, and we're, you know, watching that show up. That's a small one, but I think um, with Cleveland, I had players that I knew from 18 all the way to watching them play now in big games. Um, and you watch them grow up and you watch them build a mental game and have routines. You know, when you see a guy take a breath or look at his bat or go through the same pre-pitch routine in the box or as a pitcher, um, those are all mental. Those are all routines these guys have built for themselves. So I think the cool part is, you know, much like the strength and conditioning coach or anything else, the work shows up in really cool everyday ways, especially when you're in the clubhouse and in the dugout every day, as you can really see, it just becomes a normal part of what all our players do. Great. And then with Philadelphia, you're leading a team, right? It's not just you. There's a team of, uh, you know, mental performance um, coaches and whatnot. What's that like being in that leadership role um, and kind of directing the program, basically? I assume like for, is it, is it just major league or is it all throughout the Philly system? Also? All throughout the Philly system. Yeah, 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 so, yeah. yeah, it's absolutely amazing. From our Dominican Academy all the way up through the major league team, um, we have, let's say, one, two, three, four, five, five other coaches beyond me. So a staff of six. And um, that's been, I think, the coolest part. And, and one of the things that Philly's really let me do and supported fully is um, we really recognize that mental performance in the same way as strength and conditioning or hitting is something that you grow, you develop, 
right? If you talk about like growth mindset, I know that's such a big topic right now in education. Um, If you believe that someone's mental game develops the same way anything else does, you have to give people a chance to coach it. And it's, it's not, um, sometimes people think mental performance is like counseling or therapy. It's, it's, we don't treat it that way with Philadelphia. We treat it like a coaching staff, like you're coaching any other skill set. And our players are gaining skill sets for mental performance. And so this group of people, gosh, I've been so lucky with the staff we have. I, I think it's a powerhouse team all the way from our Dominican Academy, all the way working up at every single level. Our coaches have about one coach to every two levels right now. Um, our players are learning mental performance. They're getting presentations. They're working one-on-one. Um, there's a strength camp going on right now that Bree Hapkin, one of my coaches, is down at um, working with the mental side of their strength and conditioning camp. Um, it really is a holistic, thorough process. And Philly has fully supported that. And it's just been phenomenal. Um, and I, I there's been tremendous support, and it may even continue to grow. Do you travel with the team? Yes. So, um, we are on planes probably every four days. Yeah. Yeah. Um, team planes are great. Although part of what you realize is, um, well, getting in at three in the morning is not great, no matter what kind of plane you fly on. Um, but, but it, the chartered flights make it possible. The nice hotels make it a little bit nicer. Um, but yeah, I am wherever the team is. So you'll be, you'll be traveling to Houston pretty soon. Is that the plan? I will not because oh. I just had this little guy on right, Tuesday. Right. I was going to say, yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, he's not ready to travel yet. Um, so um, Todd Dilbeck, uh, who actually from California as well and worked with the military program as well. Um, I got to hire him and he was with AAA and then came and spent time with the major league team this year, knowing that sometime around September 8th, uh, I was about a month out from having my baby and I was going to have to stop flying and someone else is going to have to pick up. And I think that speaks to why you have a mental performance team is you know, you, you build depth on any team you have and we build depth just like the players build depth and, um, and he's there and he's kicking butt and the team's kicking butt. And we all talk all the time. (laughs) I get lots of cool texts and FaceTimes as the team's doing all this cool stuff that sometimes I get to see the dance parties and, um, it's good. And I get to be a mom. You're on maternity leave then right now. Is that, or yeah. don't get me wrong philly would give me maternity that's what i asked for um i am i'm home with my baby and um and working when i can right right so you'll be able to watch the games on tv and everything yeah yeah Yeah. i mean they were amazing they've offered for me to be up during the world series i just um he's a week old so yeah yeah, 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 yeah. uh, probably not the best thing for him at this point probably not the best thing for me but um Philadelphia has been, Philadelphia is a family, um, oriented club and they've been absolutely amazing with my husband with, um, I have two kids through my husband that are absolutely amazing, Abby and Tucker. So with Abby, with Tucker, with Anders, um, they've just been phenomenal throughout this process. Um, so I've always had options, but I think we're sadly not going to make this world series. Um, we'll make it from afar. Right, right. Well, what's it like to have a be part of a second organization that's now in the fall classic? I mean, some people go their whole careers in baseball and never make a World Series, right? I feel very lucky. And I and I have to say, I think it has a lot to do with, um, you know, I tell people when pro sports programs are interested in hiring them, um, particularly in mental performance, that you need to interview the program back. Um, because 
you can be set up for success in pro sport or you can be set up for failure. And some cultures are better than others. And um, I think Dave Dombrowski and Sam Fould have done an absolutely phenomenal job. And Joe Girardi started and um, Tom's now as the manager. I mean, it's, it's a culture that is um, Preston Mattingly should be mentioned on the player development side. It's a culture that is changing rapidly and changing in an amazing direction. And they're paying attention to people. They're paying attention to culture. They're paying attention to standard. Um, and it's, it's really, um, it's showing up, it's showing up on the field. I think you can see that with the way the guys are playing and with how much fun they're having with all of this. So, um, Cleveland had an, a unique culture too. And I think when you look at what Tito's done this year with that group of guys, um, it speaks to what a culture has created for a young, talented group of players there. Um, Brian Miles is running their mental performance stuff for the major league level there, and he's phenomenal too. So, I think when you build strong cultures, and I think Bates knows this, you see people do things that they otherwise wouldn't be capable of. Um, and this is the second time I've gotten to be part of an organization that is working towards a culture that can do things that people don't think you're capable of. And it shows up in postseason baseball. Um, it's always hard to get into postseason. And then I think a lot of um, intangibles, a lot of things that can't be quantified come into play in postseason. And so it surprises people. I know this postseason has certainly surprised people, um, but I'm not surprised with our guys. I like to ask before a season for people to tell me the story of the season before it even begins and to see kind of what they imagine. And I think we knew that team chemistry was going to be a big part of what made the team play this year. Um, I think acquisitions like Kyle Schwarber have been absolutely phenomenal players like Reese Hoskins and who they are to a clubhouse um, and to his teammates make all the impact. And you don't realize it always on the field, um, but what happens behind the scenes and how much it impacts how players play around them um, really does show up. And um, it's not always quantified in war. Um, I wish there was a war for intangibles um, (laughs) because I think it would really change how people looked at player acquisitions and how people created team dynamics. Great. Well, I'll let you go here, but any other thoughts you wanted to share about maybe your time at Bates and how it's connected to uh, now here in 2022 and, and the Philadelphia Phillies, um, that path for you that we haven't gotten to talk about perhaps. I would just say if people, no matter what it is you think you want to do when you are older, quote unquote, um, I think what you do throughout your life comes into play in ways that you never imagined. And so the quality of the statistics program at Bates has come into play in my career. My semester abroad in Cuba and the fact that I speak Spanish has come into play in my career. Um, My thesis and the fact that that helped me go to grad school where I did has come into play in my career. Um, So Bates has so many things that it offers and I I think it even took me a while to fully take advantage of that um, or to look around my senior year even and realize that nobody else was going to offer me all these things once you had paid tuition. Um, So do it all and do as much of it and take advantage of it because I've used so many facets of what my Bates education had to offer in ways that I never would have imagined using it. I never thought Spanish would be used for, um, (laughs) you know, being able to communicate with our Dominican, Venezuelan, um, Spanish-speaking players. So it just was an amazing foundation to start from. And I'm so thankful and, um, and it continues to serve me to this day. 
Great. Cece, thank you so much for taking the time to join us here on the Bobcast, talking about your time at Bates. And of course, congrats again to the Phillies on making the World Series. And I know who what all who all Bates alums will be rooting for uh, starting on Friday there. So thanks again. I hope so. Thank you so much. <laughs> thanks for your time, Aaron. The Bates football team fell to Middlebury 40-28 on Saturday in a shootout at Garcelon Field. Sophomore quarterback Colton Bossolet tied a Bates football program record with 31 completions. And senior wide receiver Christian Oliveri shattered the team mark for receptions with 17 in the contest. Head coach Matt Coyne recaps a wild afternoon of NESCAC football between the Bobcats and the Panthers. Well, Coach, first of all, I mean, the offense, that was one of their better outputs of the season. It was kind of a shootout, really, honestly, on Saturday. Take us through what was clicking in particular, I thought, Bosley to Oliveri all day, because Oliveri smashed the record for, for catches in one game by a Bobcat. Yeah, the offense was clicking. I think Colton uh, really grew up uh, Saturday. I mean, really, we got into a lot of sets based off um, scheme, but also situation in the game where, you know, we felt that was the best opportunity to let us get back in the game and, and uh, you know, get to that one score game, which we were in for a while there into the fourth. Um, a lot of it was, you know, Colton just working off of a, a backer and an option routing and, um, but it's all predicated off Colton's reads initially. So I thought, you know, first and foremost, I think the offensive staff, Coach Thompson, Coach Maiden, Coach Watrous, Coach Herson did a great job prep in preparation. Um, we wanted to attack them with our receivers, and, and we felt that was the best way to, to execute. And Colton really had a you know a good grasp of the game plan and was able to execute throughout the game. And what made Oliveri such a great target all day? Um, I think you know I, it's it's one of those where he's just very savvy, mm -hmm. and, and really what he's doing is just working off of a, a Mike Backer, and pretty much uh, I'm sure people have seen it from you know the West Welker to the Edelmans and yeah. the Patriots offense where you're really reading based off of. Um, coverage and shell um, but in order to do that both quarterback and receiver have to be on the same page um, and it was really a nice compliment from some of the big plays that you know Hom had uh, mm -hmm. in the game and um, even Garrett and Jackson Hayes and I, I think he just holistically spread the ball around and made it so that those opportunities were there when they needed to be and he made them the defense be honest in other areas as well. And the Middlebury obviously has an explosive offense. They can go to a lot of different receivers, I saw, in terms of spraying the ball around there. They also ran the ball better than they normally do. I mean, what, what were things you noticed on tape about that in terms of, you know, Middlebury's offense and what they were able to do? Yeah, we knew, you know, obviously, you know, Coach Ritter's been running that offense in our league for, seems like, decades now. You know, and yeah. it's very uh, systematic approach. And um, their quarterback's uh, a heck of a player. Um, he's got an arm that he can throw every ball in the field. Um, and their receivers are top-notch. I mean, there's a reason why they're up there competing for the championship right now. Um, the run game, you know, from our end was just a little disappointing that we just misfit a couple gaps in some of those situations. Um, I think, you know, we knew they were going to be potent on the offensive side, but I think, you know, that first half, really, we just had a couple mistakes um, that really were complemented by some uh, just missed assignments defensively that we gave them some easy scores. Um, and that was a little frustrating that we sort of dug ourselves a hole in the first half. Um, but ultimately, we were able to dig ourselves out of it. And that was very promising um, for us in that second half and, and really getting it when we had the ball two times down 33-28 with the opportunity to you know drive the field. Yeah, so, I mean, for your point of view, you're a defensive coordinator at Wesley, and, and then, but you played quarterback in the NESCAC. So what are your feelings about a shootout like that? Um, I mean, you know, I think, you know, uh, we knew it was going to be tough to hold their offense down. Um, obviously, we weren't expecting um, the amount of points we gave up. Um, but, you know, I think 
you just have to really work to make them earn it. And we wanted to limit the big plays. And I think we just sort of gave too many of them up. Um, and when you couple that with, you know, we had a turnover on a kick return, and then next play was a touchdown. Um, and then, you know, really, we, you know, the kid made a great play on the, the speed out Colton was throwing. He jumped up and picked mm -hmm. it. I mean, you tip your hat to that one. But all the statistical categories were the same, but turnovers. And again, when you play great teams, and you've heard me say it on here before, your margin of error is thin. Um, and, and that's ultimately, you know, what led to, you know, not being able to get it, the W. In terms of, you know, building week to week, do you think this was uh, progress in a lot of ways, though? Because, I mean, Middlebury is one of the top teams defensively, and you guys were able to do a lot. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, you take bits and pieces. Obviously, I think from where you look at us from week one to Wesleyan to now, I think anybody would <laughs> say they see a vast improvement just on both sides of the ball. And I think that's, you know, just indicative of being inside of the system for longer and getting reps and understanding and working together. And you love to see that growth. Um, but ultimately, we should be upset with that because we had an opportunity to win a game there against a top team, and that's what this team is capable of. And I think that's the turning point for the mentality of the team. Our guys are, are uh, going to get ready to come to work tomorrow, and, and they're frustrated right now. They're upset, and they should be. You know, it's, it sucks to lose. Um, from the coach's side of it, I see, you know, a lot of improvement in a lot of areas. Um, and ultimately, you know, we just have to eliminate the, the bonehead errors in those situations. Um, to be able to beat that top team, and we'll get there. Um, but it's just going to take some some time and some reflection and, and some film. Sure, and then you got um, a road game at Williams, long trip there to Western Mass, and this is a Williams team that was so good last year. They've struggled this season, but, I mean, every game's a challenge, obviously. They're hungry for another victory. They only got one so far, but it should be a battle, right? 100%. I mean, Coach Raymond and his staff do a great job, and obviously they lost – um, some key players last year, but when you turn the tape on, um, it's one of the best one in five teams I've seen. You know, up front they're very physical, um, and they're going to try to come out and run the ball on us. We know that, um, so it's going to be a challenge. They have a big offensive front. And they still have a you know a great running back in in uh, Nicholas, and they're playing Dan Vaughn, who's a running back as their quarterback. So um, a lot of formational shifts, motions, and things that we have to really be locked in on on the defensive side of the ball. And, um, and then they've always been stingy on defense. I mean, you know, they play a, a really different style defense than we've seen. But, um, you know, we're, we're in the lab right now working at that. But ultimately, it doesn't matter what Williams' record is. That, that program is the defending NESCAC champions. Yep. So for us, I mean, I think it's something that, you know, we want to go up there and, and prepare and put our best versions out there and just compete. And I know... Um, that's what we're going to do this week. And you obviously have a connection with Williams. You started your career as a player there. What do you remember about playing for the Eves and then also competing against them after you transferred? <laughs> yeah, it just uh, it's always a tough place to, to play at. Um, I mean, a lot of history there, and, and they've had success. Obviously, they had a few years there where they were down a little bit. But, um, you know, Coach Raymond came in and really flipped the script. And, um, you know, for a while, if you look back at the records, I mean, that's they've been at the top, you know, and that's a team that you, you want to go up and be able to put a good effort out there, um, competing against them. We know it's gonna, you know, it's gonna be a close game. You know, we know it's gonna be a dogfight. Um, I hope it's different in our favor, but that's just not the nature usually when you go on the road, and um, ultimately that's where you really earn it. You go on the road and, and you figure out what you're made of, and, and we've played well on the road, um, you know, this year um, for the most part. Um, so we're excited about the challenge. Like, we respect the opponent, and the record doesn't matter at this point because, you know, Williams doesn't want to lose to Bates, and Bates doesn't want to lose to Williams, and that's, that's the bottom line. So we just got to prepare, get back to work, and keep building.
The nationally ranked Bates field hockey team rolled into New London on Saturday and defeated the Connecticut College Camels by a score of 3-0, with three different Bobcats finding the back of the cage. Senior goalkeeper Grace Biddle made a season-high seven saves to earn the shutout, and she is one of our Bobcats of the week. We really showed up the first quarter. Uh, we had a tough start, no score, um, and then second quarter our defense really showed up. We had a lot of corners against us. Uh, our DPC unit has really been working hard at practice, uh, really showed in the game. Um, and then third and fourth quarter, we really came back, got our flow on. Uh, <laughs> we had a couple goals, uh, two for my roommates, shout out to Ellen Cammy, and uh, also Paige with the sick goal. Yeah, but then we just really, the defense has really been showing up in practice, and it just really showed in the game. Yeah. You mentioned penalty corner defense. So from a goalie's perspective, what's key to setting that up? Because it's such a unique circumstance, I guess, in, you know, in, in terms of sports and field hockey. Yeah. It's really hard because it's four on eight, I think. So it's the chances of scoring are definitely in the other team's favor. Uh, we really practice with our core four, uh, Molly Harmon, Molly Griffin, Amanda Zervib, and then Lauren Salazar. So I really fast fly. Uh, Lauren is super fast, really gets out uh, and tries to pressure the ball in one direction. And then we really have to focus on communication for who's going to jump to the next pass. And we've had uh, really good luck this season stopping those shots and stopping the outlet to either baseline too. Yeah. And then as a goalie, are you like yelling out instructions or how's that going? Yeah. yeah, usually I always cheer really loud for them, try to get them hyped up before we go out. Uh, yeah, I try to say which way the ball's going, and, but I really have to just uh, stay focused on the shot too if it does come. Great. Yeah. So take us back when you were growing up, State College, Pennsylvania, right? Mm-hmm. When did you first start playing field hockey and when did you first decide you wanted to be a goalie? Oh, yeah. Uh, field hockey's always been really popular in my town with Penn State. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of girls on my team were really inner connected with that team as well um and I didn't actually start playing goalie until my sophomore year of high school Uh, I played field started in eighth grade really liked it uh originally just doing it to stay fit for basketball but um, (laughs) that kind of came and went so really focused on field hockey in high school uh switched to goalie really loved it met Danny right away and just decided that Bates was going to be next step for me yeah. yeah so how did Bates come on your radar kind of coming from Pennsylvania yeah um I went to a tournament and I saw that Danny and uh, her assistant at the time were going to be there I always heard Bates was a really great school uh had never been to Maine but heard it was really beautiful <laughs> and uh as soon as I started talking to her and found out she used to be a goalkeeper too it just it all really clicked for me yeah what's it like having a head coach who was a goalkeeper herself I mean is, are the demands a little bit higher for you yeah. <laughs> No, it's really awesome. I mean, Danny is really our everything, uh, like just a really great coach for the whole team. But specifically as a goalie, she gives really great feedback and has so much experience um, from when she played. And it's just really kept me motivated to be the best that I can be to help her out and help the team. Well, it's interesting, like, I often, like, compare, like, field hockey, and then you have, like, soccer goalies, but soccer goalies can actually grab the ball and, like, hold on to it. As a field hockey goalie, you're just trying to deflect it away, right? I mean, what's that like, kind of having that? And you, you can't even really cover up the ball either, right? Yeah. No, yeah, it's definitely a big part of the game is trying to clear it wide. Yeah. Uh, Danny's always, like, clear it as far as you can. Um, yeah, that's definitely – I haven't played goalie for other sports, so mm-hmm. I've never really had to, like, face that mental barrier, but – yeah, it's definitely trying to get it, just get it out of the circle. You never did any ice hockey or anything? No, no, oh, I didn't. Okay. No, <laughs> yeah, just field hockey. I know a lot of field hockey, some of the field hockey players here do play ice hockey. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, we have some really good, my 
left back, Molly Griffin, uh, is on the ice hockey team. She's awesome. Maria, too. Yeah, a lot of girls have tried playing it. It's really fun. We do a lot of stuff with that team. Yeah. Great. And then um, tell me a little bit about, you know, being the only senior this year, right? Is, is that kind of strange? <laughs> yeah, it's really weird. Um, we had seven when I was a freshman coming in my recruiting class. Uh, we now have five and four have deferred. <laughs> so it's just me. Um, yeah, I really I thought about deferring, but I really just uh, want to take my four years at Bates, and I've, it's so great that we've had such an amazing season as my last season, and um, yeah, I couldn't really ask for a better team. It's it's been it's been great. Yeah, this year, I mean, in particular, I just feel like this team could beat anyone really in the conference. I mean, you've had some really close games. You had a huge win early in the year over Bowdoin, of course. The overtime win on the road at Williams was a thriller. Also, what's the season been like, kind of from your perspective? You just touched on it, though, like you know, kind of your last year, but making the most of it, right? Yeah, our team is just really. We took a huge shift in the spring with fitness um, and conditioning. I was abroad, but I was really trying to keep up with the training program and. Uh, really great putting Paige, uh, Paige Cody to sign this whole thing for us and mm. we've had a lot of uh, team culture shifts um, and just really worked on certain aspects of our game that really now we can beat anybody and if we play our game and uh, as we go into postseason I, I really think that we could go far. And you have two younger goalies who are also on the team um, how do you do you serve kind of as a mentor to them a little bit? Oh no we we, <laughs> <laughs> we started calling it this year the GKU goalkeeper union okay uh, the three of us are really a support system for each other we push each other every practice we really never know who's gonna be in the game it's mm. really close every time uh, Kylie is amazing first year uh, Emma Volkers is like has been my bestie from the start uh, and yeah it's really great to have them and we really work together as a unit to improve our game. What are your thoughts on this um, week coming up here? Because you've got Colby, we're talking on Monday, you've got Colby tomorrow at their place, a night game under the lights. And then after that, you've got the tournament coming up, right? Yeah, yeah, we're really excited for Colby. Uh, we've been doing a lot of, you know, scouting on them and preparing to play. Uh, and then tournament, we're just waiting to see who we'll, we'll find out tomorrow night, who we play. But um, yeah, we're sitting in a really good spot. Um, the These last two games are really important to us, so just really focusing on tomorrow and trying to get the highest seed that we can. All right, Bobcat of the Week, Grace Biddle, thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you, Aaron. Bates Rowing competed in the 57th annual Head of the Charles Regatta on Sunday with both the men and women's teams turning in excellent performances. On the men's side, the first Varsity 8 placed 11th out of 41 boats in the Collegiate 8s race, and the Varsity 4 turned in the best performance in the Collegiate 4s in program history, finishing 5th out of 39 crews. Sophomore coxswain Izzy Beck navigated the men's varsity four down the course and is one of our Bobcats of the week. Well, Izzy, first of all, tell us about how you first got into being a coxswain growing up. It's actually a funny story because I started coxing my freshman year of high school, you know, um, public high school team. And my mom was a rower when she was in high school. And she was like, oh, you should try it out. It was a great team when I was at my high school, so I just tried it out and I loved it. Like, it just worked for me. And where did you grow up? In Montclair, New Jersey. Montclair, New Jersey. Okay, so a lot of rowing there. My high school team was actually pretty well known for being, like, a good public high school team. But in New Jersey in general, there's not many, like, big rivers to row on. So it's not too popular. But we're pretty close to Philly, where there is a big rowing scene. So that was where all our races were and stuff. You're a sophomore now, but take us through when you're looking at colleges, what made Bates the place for you? And did you know you wanted to join the rowing team right away? I came to Bates for the rowing team. I wanted to, 
obviously be at like a high level institution, um, small liberal arts college. And so I just applied to Bates because it had the best of both worlds for me. And I got in and I reached out to the coaches and I was like, hey, I wanna be on your team. And they were more than welcoming. And yeah, it's been great ever since. Tell us about the group of coxes you have because it's a pretty good group, right? Yeah, um, some of the coxes on the team are like my biggest mentors and great friends of mine, um, especially last year, being on the women's team last year. There are a lot of really high achieving coxswains and they kind of took me under their wing and they showed me the ropes and I was really grateful for that. And then going on to the men's team this year, um, it's been really great to work with a new group of guys. Well, one guy and some women. And I think that we've really got a good thing going. And yeah, I mean, the thing about being a coxswain in general is you need to be able to communicate well with and work well with your teammates and a big part of that is being able to work well with other coxswains and so we're really lucky to have a good group of people who works well together and collaborates and yeah it's great so yeah tell us a little bit more about you know moving from the women's team to the men's team what kind of prompted the move what's the tradition been like yeah it was a it was really interesting because I kind of came in being like, I'm a women's coxswain, I'm going to be on the women's team. And I had a great two seasons, fall and spring, last year with the women. Um, some of my best friends were on that team, you know. And one day my coach just at the end of the year was like, we need an extra coxswain for this boat that's going out, which was like four of the fastest guys on the team and they just stuck me in there and I was like okay <laughs> like going from a women's novice eight mm. to then like the varsity men was really intimidating but um I just got in there and I did what I did and um they really we worked really well together and so the guys um the captains asked me to join the team and coach also was like well if they're asking you to join, then you should really think about it. And I did, and I just kind of came to the conclusion that I work really well with them and that it's a good fit for me. So that move happened last spring? Yeah, it happened, like, the last week of school. Okay, yeah. Was it for IRAs or for...? It was, so the men had been training for IRAs, yeah. and they needed an extra coxswain just to help them train. Okay. And so they stuck me in there, <laughs> and I was with them for, like, a week and a half, and it was great. So this, let's take us through the, this past weekend, this race, the, the fours, best finish ever for the men in the collegiate fours. Take us through the race from your perspective. I mean, you have the view of the course, right? <laughs> yeah, I, it was a crazy race. I mean, everyone who asks me, that's what I say, because we passed, I think, three crews, um, which is the goal. Yeah. Like, for a head race, you want to pass as many boats as you can. And with head racing, it's like, as a coxswain, you need to be on it. You know, it's a coxswain's race. Coach always says that, and but you can never predict what's going to happen with the other coxswains, and so communication is huge, but sometimes the coxswains just won't listen to you, and so if you're going, if you're the boat that's going faster, the other boats have to yield to you, you know, and so I was, yesterday I was just lying down there in the boat like, yeah, like, moo, <laughs> yelling at these coxswains, and sometimes they would yield, sometimes they wouldn't, and when they don't yield, you just got to just got to go, you know? And so that's always like the fun of it and being really aggressive with those coxswains is super fun. But no, it was a really, we we felt that it was really fast. Um, we've had a few really good practices right before this race. And so we were, we went in feeling like 
okay, yeah, this is going to feel good. The warm-up was great. Um, it was super smooth, you know? And so we, we, were, we were ready, you know? And we just went through the race and worked as hard as we can. Like, the guys gave it absolutely their all. And it was, yeah, it was a great race. I don't really remember much of it. Right. So <laughs> yeah. that means it's good, right? Yeah, for sure. Well, I'm curious the differences between coxing a four and coxing an eight, because first of all, in the four, you're like lying down in the boat almost, mm -hmm. whereas right. in the eight, you're looking at your crew. You're not looking at your crew in the four, right? Right. So in a four, the way that rowing kind of works is that the rowers are facing backwards, yeah. right? And they're pushing they're, the blades in the water and they're pushing with their legs and they're moving the boat backwards. And I'm the only person who can see anything. I'm yeah. like the eyes and the ears of the boat also steering and so in a four because to make it more aerodynamic the coxswain lies behind all the guys facing forward and for a head race it's really it's it can be really difficult because yeah. you can't see what's going on behind you you know so that's it's really important to have good uh rowers who will communicate well with you which i was really lucky to have that with my crew um and yeah so fours they're more um they're obviously smaller. There's only four people and the rudder is more responsive because mm -hmm. it's smaller, you know? So it was fun to just be able to whip around the turns and stuff yesterday. Um, and so then in an eight, there's eight people. You're sitting in the back of the boat facing the rowers. You can see everything that's going on around you. And so oftentimes coxswains will prefer eights mm -hmm. because you can see, right. you know, <laughs> and you know what's going on. But fours are a real test because you need to be able to feel out what's going on and kind of figure out what's best for your crew without seeing them and not really seeing everything that's going on around you. Yeah. You mentioned, you know, yelling at other crews to yield and some of them wouldn't. Um, <laughs> and I know the bridges can be a little, going under those can be a little dicey. Any, any particular moments that stand out? I know you don't remember most of it, but. <laughs> yeah, well, there's this one moment that we all, we talked about like five times yesterday. It was so funny. So there's this one, there's a few bridges where when you're under the bridge, you are turning, mm -hmm. right? And it's a really sharp, like 90 degree turn. And so there's this one bridge, um, Anderson Bridge, where it's a sharp turn to the right to starboard. And we had just passed a boat. They were on our starboard side. And so I was lined up for the bend, like ready to take it really tight, you know? And this crew suddenly just like <laughs> turned right into us. Oh. And luckily, everyone was okay, but the guys were just screaming at them. Well, not screaming, but they were like, yield, stay out, you know, because for safety. And in the words of my stroke man, um, Fletcher Libre, who was sitting in the front, he said, the bow of their, or the stern of our boat yeah. dipped under the water, underneath the bow of the other crew. Wow. So basically, we were overlapping and we went, like, literally under the water underneath the other crew and like luckily that saved us and we were able to take the turn and like move away from them mm. but if we hadn't dipped under the water then we would have crashed and <laughs> i mean if that just that's just one example of how insane yeah. it is but um i mean it's so fun and so many just so many things happen on the course that you cannot plan for and so that's just kind of like it's the fun of it, and it's also a test for the rowers and the coxswain. Like, how will you respond? Is that your first time on the Charles River? Yes. <laughs> well, it wasn't my first time on the river, but it was my first time racing that course. Right, right, gotcha. Yeah, and so how, well, what were your impressions of it? I mean, that's one of the biggest events in all of rowing, right? Yeah, it's arguably the biggest. Yeah. I mean, it was 
thousands of crews, thousands of entries. Um, it was so surreal for me to be on that course. Um, when we were warming up, going down towards the starting line, we were passing the um, men's championship eights who were racing up. And it was really cool for me to look out and see all these coxswains who I kind of have looked up to for so long. I mean, like, all these, like, high-level collegiate crews and also, like, the U.S. national team was racing. And so to look out and to see all these, like, really experienced and, like, good uh, coxswains and rowers also racing was really cool for me. Awesome. Well, Izzy, thank you so much for joining us on the Bobcast. Congrats again on the men's varsity four getting a top five finish there at the head of Charles. Thank you so much for having me. On the women's side, the Bobcats placed two boats in the top ten of the Collegiate Eights race for the first time since 2017, with the 1V finishing fourth and the 2V taking ninth place out of 36 boats. First varsity eight coxswain Ali Saleen joins the Bobcast this week to look back on an exciting Sunday of racing. Well, Ollie, you grew up in Ohio, so tell us a little bit about, you know, growing up and when you got into, you know, the sport of rowing and specifically becoming a coxswain. Yeah, so rowing in the Midwest is not very common. I had never heard of it, and my older brother actually joined the rowing team when he was in high school, and he told me, you know, you don't like a lot of the sports you're doing. Why don't you come? Just try it out. If you don't like it, it's okay, but see what you think. And my very first day, I actually started as a rower but I was shorter than everyone by probably about half a foot. So they said, okay, we have a different position for you. We're going to put you somewhere else and see how you like it. So I immediately loved it, and right away I dove right in. I was the only coxswain on the novice squad, so I was kind of everywhere and anywhere I needed to be, but I really enjoyed it. What was the biggest learning curve for you, I guess, becoming a coxswain? Because it's such a unique role in the world of sports, kind of, right? Yeah, so I was really quiet when I joined the team, which is hard to be when you're a coxswain. <laughs> so right away, it kind of forced me to step out of my shell and be confident in decisions that I made and speak up because you have to speak for those four rowers or there's eight rowers when you're on the water and you have to be the one to make the decisions for the betterment of your crew. So it really grew my confidence and forced me to step up and be a leader to rowers who were seniors, who were freshmen, novice, varsity, no matter who it was. In high school, were you mainly coxing fours or eights? I was in an eights program, but okay. I did a little bit of both. Gotcha. And obviously this past weekend, you were in the first varsity eight there on the Charles, uh, the head of Charles Regatta, pretty much the most famous rowing event uh, in the world, probably. Uh, it was not your first time at the head of Charles, right? You'd done it before? Yeah. So I had coxed the high school um, youth eight for my program twice previously, and then I did Bates second varsity eight last year. So what's it like knowing that course so well? Um, it's one of my favorites to steer. Obviously in the spring, it's go straight and hit the line as straight as you can, but I love to cut turns and kind of see, you know, where you can place your bow, where you can try to cut off time and also watch, you know, how other coxswains take the course. Cause you really feed off those other crews. And if you can find a spot in another boat, maybe where they took it a little bit wide, it's like, okay, let's cut in, let's get in front of them by taking this next turn really sharp. Obviously a good showing for the 1V, a fourth place finish. Um, what, take us through the race. Uh, were there any, uh, I was talking to the Varsity Four Coxon for the men, and she mentioned that there was one near collision under one of the bridges. What was it like from your perspective, a pretty clean race? Yeah, we had a pretty isolated race, mm -hmm. um, which is something that we were hoping for and kind of came to expect as the race started playing out. So obviously we're between Wellesley and WPI, two very strong programs um, coming out from last spring. So our main goal was to make it kind of a three-boat race to see can we isolate ourselves out from WPI and also kind of stay on the heels of Wellesley as we're coming through the course 
So we managed to kind of stay between both boats as we came down, but we did push quite a bit of distance off of WPI, which is great for the momentum as we are coming around the first turn. I remember telling the crew, you know, they're about a boat length and a half off. Let's try and do something with that. And maybe 20 strokes later, turning around again, and they were three boat lengths off. So it was great to start that momentum off. And I remember looking at Dixon and Winter and Strokes and being like, okay, Wellesley's back there. Let's see what we can do with this. What's this 1V group like? Yeah, it's been a really fun season kind of figuring out who was going to be in those seats because we do have some people abroad. We had some graduated out. So of figuring out, you know, who's going to be that best combination that coach talks about. And we have a lot of maturity in the shell in that race um, with five seniors and a lot. I think most, if not all, went to NCAAs last year um, with Burdick and Stevens and I being the alternates and everyone else racing. So we had that really strong mindset and that ability to come in and say, okay, this is our goal. We're going to do our best to hold ourselves accountable, hold ourselves to that standard, and also just have a lot of fun on the course. And then what about the group of coxswains you have? Because obviously I know um, Lucy Del Cole is abroad, but there's a, still a really strong group of coxswains, right? Yeah, so um, obviously we had Bella Sobolewski in the um, second varsity eight and Hannah Broslau in the four. Um, Hannah doesn't have a ton of racing experience, as um, Bella and I both coxed in high school, but she really came out super strong in that course um, in the four. That's a hard boat to steer, mm-hmm. not being able to see anything. And then obviously Bella in the second varsity, another wonderful coxswain. So we had a great group coming out with the men's coxswains as well, who we worked a lot together to make sure we all felt comfortable on the course before we came. And we all knew that we could hold the best line that we could. And then you mentioned being an alternate NCAAs last year. What was that experience like to get kind of a taste of that competition? Yeah, so I love the opportunity to be able to go. It was such a fun experience, not only just obviously going to NCAAs, but kind of seeing that top of the mountain moment of we've worked so hard through this season and it's gotten us here. Let's see what we can do with this opportunity. So going with um, Hannah Burdick and Joe Stevens last year as the other alternates, um, it was really great to be able to be there to support the team and the other coxswains and just kind of be where we needed to be to make sure that they could perform their best. Great. And then, um, you know, what's kind of the plan throughout the winter or leading into the spring, especially from a coxswain's perspective, because I've talked to some coxswains who are like, we go on the erg machine just like the rowers do, kind of in solidarity. What's kind of your plan there? <laughs> yeah, so obviously um, after Charles, you know, we're really ready to hit it this winter and see what kind of speed we can gain. We have a great first-year class who really came in hitting the ground running, so we're excited to see both the maturity we have in such a large senior class, but also such a large amount of first years of how that energy will translate into the winter season. I know I am not the best at erging, and I can maybe improve my technique a little bit, but I'm looking forward to getting a little down and dirty with the team on our circuits and our different exercises that we can take part in that we don't have to run. But I think it's going to be a great season. Awesome. Well, Ollie, thank you so much for joining us on the Bobcast, and congrats again on a great showing there at the Charles. Thank you. By the time you listen to this episode of the Bobcast, the soccer teams will have wrapped up their regular seasons with afternoon contests at Colby. Plus, the field hockey team will know where they rank headed into the NESCAC tournament. Friday and Saturday marks the final two home games of the year for the volleyball team, so head on over to Alumni Gym and support the Bobcats. Check out GoBatesBobcats.com for the complete athletic schedule, and we'll catch you next time on the Bates. Bobcast. Bye. Bye.